The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. Theism is the belief that God created this universe, but then took a step back and no longer has any involvement with what he created. The God of deism is often compared to a watchmaker who makes a watch, but then doesn't really need to do anything else in order for that watch to function properly. The watchmaker is able to leave the watch alone and it works just fine. Likewise, deists believe God created this universe, but then was able to take a step back and take his hands off of it and essentially let the universe run itself. God no longer has any involvement with this world or even with us. And even though I imagine that most of us in this room probably would not consider ourselves to be deists, perhaps we're often more deistic in our thinking than we often imagine. See, it's so easy for us to fall into the mentality, almost without even realizing it, that God's not really doing much of anything in the places where we go or in the people we encounter. After all, we usually don't see many obvious signs that he's working, so we often assume that he's not. And it's almost impossible to overstate the effect that this deistic mentality has on our evangelistic efforts. As Christians, of course, most of us are aware that God has called us to evangelize, right? He's called us to share with others the gospel message of Jesus. But going along with this deistic mentality, we often suppose that we're the ones who have to take the initiative and get the ball rolling, so to speak. That it's up to us to make things happen evangelistically. It's like we imagine that God's basically turned us loose to spread the gospel and then been like, all right, guys, good luck with that, right? Go make it happen. Now, when I say it out loud, most of us probably recognize that that's not really an accurate view of God. But if we're honest, isn't that the view of God in which we often function? Are we not? At certain times and in certain ways, functional deists. And here's how I believe this is especially relevant. I'm convinced that this mentality of functional deism is one of the key reasons why so many of us are so intimidated at the idea of sharing the gospel. And why, if statistics are accurate, a majority of Christians, even in this room, probably haven't shared the gospel with a single person in the past year, if not at any time. But this passage here in Acts 8 gives us a much different view of things. 
It shows us that God is actively working all around us, specifically to draw people to himself. And that's the main idea of this passage, that God is actively working to draw people to himself. So read with me once again in Acts 8, 26 through 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated on his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join his chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom? I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, The spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So just notice all of the ways in which we see God at work in this passage. First, verse 26 tells us that an angel of the Lord instructs Philip to go to a certain place in the desert. Then when Philip arrives at his destination, the spirit tells him in verse 29 to go up to the chariot of this high ranking Ethiopian official who just happens to be passing by. This man, by the way, was very high ranking. Today, he'd be like the equivalent of the secretary of the treasury for our nation. Then in verses 30 through 34, the official just happens to need help interpreting the clearest prophecy about Jesus in the entire Old Testament. Then in verse 36, the official's chariot just happens to come to a stream or pool of water. Not exactly the most common thing in the desert, right? Then in verse 39, it says that the spirit carried Philip away which is undoubtedly one of the coolest things I've ever read in the Bible, right? In case you're wondering, there is teleportation in Scripture. It's right there. So it's quite clear that God's behind pretty much everything that happens in this passage. His sovereign hand is orchestrating it all. Nothing that happens here is accidental or a mere coincidence, And that's especially evident in how God prepared the heart of this Ethiopian official for Philip's arrival. 
I mean, how perfect is it that this official just happens to be reading Isaiah 53 as Philip approaches his chariot? Like, are you kidding me? Listen to what Isaiah 53 says. Of course, we already read the portion that the Ethiopian official quotes, which is verses 7 and 8 of Isaiah 53. But listen to some of the verses that come right before that. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the passage that the official was reading when Philip came up to him. And he asked Philip who this passage is referring to. And talk about putting the ball on the tee, right? It doesn't get much easier than this to tell someone about Jesus. And that's exactly what Philip proceeds to do. Verse 35 of our main passage states, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. This good news is that Jesus suffered the punishment for our sin. Just like the prophet Isaiah predicted hundreds, this was about seven or eight hundred years that Isaiah wrote this before Jesus came. So just like Isaiah predicted, Jesus was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, it says. So even though we should have suffered for our sins forever in hell, Jesus took that punishment in our place when he died on the cross. Understand, nobody made him do that. He let that happen. He, he didn't even protest. As we already heard from the lips of the Ethiopian official himself, Jesus was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that it before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus voluntarily went to the cross to pay for our sins. Then, of course, that's not the end of the story because three days later, Jesus resurrected from the dead to show that the Father had indeed accepted his sacrifice and so that he now stands ready to save everyone who will put their trust in him. And he's the only way. That's the good news that Philip shared with this official. <laughs> it's the best news in the whole world. And the emphasis on this passage, or of this passage, is on how God prepared this royal official to hear the news that Philip shared. The setup was perfect. God was actively working in this official even prior to Philip's arrival in order to prepare the official's heart and draw the official to himself. Now here's the key connection for our lives, all right? Do you believe that God is actively at work 
in people and situations today as well. And not just in people and situations in general, but in many of the very people and situations that you encounter in your day-to-day life. Like when you look around you, what do you see? Do you just see a bunch of people and, and situations that are there randomly, as if by chance? Or do you see people and situations who are, have come into your life by the sovereign hand of God? Because he has a purpose for it. Because there's a really good chance that he's working in those people and through those situations to accomplish his will, which is chiefly to draw people to himself. Do you believe that? And do you believe God's actively working to draw people to himself, even if you're not able to see any obvious signs of that at first? Now, someone might object that Acts 8 is a narrative text. And that is just telling us what happened at one time and isn't necessarily saying that this kind of thing happens all the time or even frequently. That's a fair point, but I believe all the things I've said are still justified because they're all ultimately an outgrowth of the doctrine of election. I briefly stated the doctrine of election By the way, it has nothing to do with any political elections today, right? The doctrine of election is simply the teaching throughout the New Testament that God's chosen certain people to be saved. Now, even though there is such a thing as human agency, and it is absolutely necessary for people to voluntarily choose to put their faith in Jesus in order to be saved, at the same time, God's the one who, at the end of the day, is ultimately responsible for it all. He's, he's ultimately responsible for choosing certain people, people for salvation and of drawing those people to himself. If you want more information about that, um, feel free to reference John 6, 44, John 13, 18, John 15, 16, John 17, 2, Acts 13, 48, Romans 8, 28 through 30, Romans 9, 11 through 23, Romans 11, 1 through 24, 1 Corinthians 1, 21 through 24, Ephesians 1, 3 through 11, and 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 through 5, just to name a few verses. You guys got all those down? This will be on video afterwards where I have my notes. You can get them down if you need to. But these verses all teach that God has chosen certain people for salvation. And if you think about it, that's an enormous encouragement for evangelism because it means that we should expect people to be saved. For example, in Acts chapter 18, when the apostle Paul was in Corinth and was having a tough time and was apparently discouraged and tempted to be fearful of his adversaries, listen to what Jesus said to him. Acts 18, 9 and 10. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you for, here's the reason, I have many in this city who are my people. Did you catch that? I have many in this city who are my people. 
Jesus used the doctrine of election to encourage Paul in his missionary efforts in Corinth. He reminded Paul that there are still people chosen for salvation who haven't yet come to faith, but who will come to faith, presumably through Paul's witness. As a result, Paul should stay in Corinth and expect God to be actively at work all around him. And I believe the doctrine of election should give us that very same expectation as well. The expectation for God to actively be at work in the people and situations we encounter. Also consider what Jesus said to his disciples shortly before his crucifixion in John 12, 32. He told them, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. That phrase lifted up refers to Jesus being lifted up on the cross. So in other words, Jesus is saying, after I'm crucified, I'm going to work all over the world to draw people to myself. And of course, he would do that through the Holy Spirit. So again, are you expecting Jesus to be doing that? In the people and through the circumstances you encounter in your day-to-day life. And as we see back in our main passage of Acts 8 with Philip and this Ethiopian official, are you expecting Jesus to be doing that, drawing people to himself, even before you open your mouth to say anything? See, personal evangelism isn't about us going out and making something happen. It's about us joining God in the work that he's already doing all around us. He's already gone out before us in order to get things ready. We just have to join him. Think of the Holy Spirit as an agricultural worker going out ahead of us and preparing the soil. As you're probably aware, even if you have no experience with agriculture, you have to prepare the soil prior to scattering seed. You have to plow the soil and cultivate it so that it's loose enough for the seed to get down in there and begin to take root. And that's what the Holy Spirit does prior to us scattering the seed in our gospel witness. Obviously, he doesn't do that in everyone, since there are still plenty of people who reject the gospel, but he does do it in many people. And I would think he'd do it more in the people he puts in our proximity. And personally, I just assume that the closer someone is in proximity to me as a Christian, then the more likely it is that God's chosen them for salvation and that he's actively working in them. He's already cultivating the soil of their hearts prior to me even saying anything. And that mentality goes back to two things. There are two reasons why I believe we should expect God's work in this world of drawing people to himself to be focused especially on the people in our proximity. First, the biblical teaching that God has chosen to use his people 
Christians to do his work of advancing the gospel. Just think about how God used Philip here. Notice how all of this got started. And verse 26 records how God sent an angel to tell Philip to go to the desert. Now, don't you think it would have been a lot more efficient for the angel just to go to the Ethiopian directly? Right? Wouldn't that have like saved a step that, that the angel just could have shared the gospel with the eunuch himself? But he didn't do that, right? Of course, it would have been a lot more efficient, but that's not the way God's chosen to work. Instead, he's chosen very graciously to draw people to faith through our witness. That is through the witness of his people. That's why God went out of his way to include Philip and why we should expect God to include us as well. And by the way, what a privilege that is. I mean, just imagine that the, the president of the United States came to you. And, and, and let's say for the sake of this, this was a man that you deeply respected, okay? Let's say the president of the United States himself came to you and personally asked you to do something in service to our country. Out of all the people he could have asked, he asks you. I mean, what an honor and privilege that would be, right? And so how much greater of a privilege is it for God to ask us and to give us a part in his work in this world? What an incredible thing. And what a good reason to expect God to focus his work on people in our proximity. Also, another reason for expecting God to focus his work in this way is the understanding that God sovereignly places his people exactly where he wants them to be. And he does that for a reason. Now, sometimes that reason isn't entirely clear to us. I'm sure that when God sent this angel to tell Philip to go out into the desert, that Philip was probably pretty confused by that. Because you, you've got to remember that Philip had an incredibly fruitful ministry there in Samaria. I mean, people were coming to faith in Jesus left and right. Philip was riding the, the wave of an enormous spiritual revival and, and awakening in Samaria. And now, God wants him to go out to the desert? And likewise, we may not always understand why God's brought us to the place in life where we are. But as we see in this passage, there's a reason for God placing us where he does. God sent Philip to the desert because this Ethiopian official was there. And tradition has it, by the way, that this official, after he came to faith through Philip's witness, he went back to Ethiopia as a missionary and was used by God to bring many other Ethiopians to faith in Jesus as well. How amazing is that? And just as God was sovereign in where he placed Philip, he's sovereign in where he places you. Now, of course, God could be planning to send you somewhere else at some point in the future. 
But for now, he's got you right where you are. None of it is accidental or random or a mere coincidence. God's placed you where you are in your family, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, among your friends and acquaintances for a reason. He's brought them into your life and you into their lives because there's something he desires to accomplish there. So as the saying goes, just bloom where you're planted. Yes, God could always move you somewhere else, but until he makes that clear, bloom where you're planted and expect God to be at work all around you. So to sort of bring all this together, we should expect God to be actively at work all around us, drawing people to himself because first of all, we know he's chosen certain people for salvation, just like the Ethiopian eunuch. And not only that, we should expect God's work in drawing people to himself to be focused especially on the people in our proximity. Because we know, number one, that God uses his people to do his work, just as he used Philip rather than the angel. And number two, we know that God sovereignly places his people exactly where he wants them to be for a reason. Just as he directed Philip to that particular location way out there in the desert. So expect God to be at work in people in general and expect God's work to be focused specifically on the people he places around you. Going back to the agricultural illustration, expect fertile soil. Expect God to already be at work ahead of you, preparing the soil. Making people fertile soil for the seed of the word that you share. Uh, you know, when Becky and I were um, in the process of moving up here to Pittsburgh in order to start this church not all that long ago, we were praying that God would be at work ahead of us. We were praying that he would even direct us to the neighborhood that he wanted us to live in. And that he would even bring us to, to the very house that he wanted us to buy, where, where he wanted us to live. And then in faith, we, you know, we purchased a house that seemed good to us. We um, moved up here and we just started to try our best to be faithful witnesses for Jesus. And little did we know, but at our next door neighbors were also praying. They weren't you know, Christians at the time, but they were praying themselves. The, uh, the boyfriend was actually praying that God, if God wanted something from him, that God would give him a sign. And lo and behold, a pastor moves in next door, right? You've really got to be careful what you pray for, all right? Um, and over the course of the next year, year and a half, um, my wife Becky and I were gradually able to share the gospel with this man and his girlfriend, who's now his wife, and uh, just tell them what the Bible says about Jesus. We invited them over for something that we now call an evangelistic Bible study. And of course, we didn't really have a fancy name for it back then, but uh, we just did what seemed 
to make the most sense to us and what seemed most natural, which is inviting them over to our house for a series of four, the three or four sessions in which we just gave them an overview of the gospel. It really wasn't anything fancy. We, we simply explained what the Bible says about why Jesus came to this earth and what he was accomplishing. And, and also we're, we were just real with them about the, the difference that God had made in our own lives. And then finally, after about a year, the, the wife came to faith in Jesus. Her name is Heather Lowe. Then about six months later, the husband also came to faith in Jesus. His name was Brian Lowe. He was a little bit more stubborn than, than her. And Brian and Heather, of course, were two of the original 14 people who covenanted together to start Redeeming Grace Church. And they're still part of the church today. They're here this morning and some of our closest friends. And they are seeking to share with others as well this message, this life-changing message of Jesus. So understand that God has placed you where you are for a reason. That he has a purpose for placing you around the people that he's placed you around. And that should lead you to expect him to be at work in those people even prior to you coming there. Like even prior to you buying the house, so to speak, for God to already be at work preparing the way. Expect open doors. Expect fertile soil. Don't let yourself fall into that mentality of functional deism. Instead, view all of the people and and circumstances in your life through what we might call a lens of expectancy. You don't have to go out and make things happen. Just join God in the work that he's already doing in the people around you. And expect God to bless your efforts. In John 4, 35 through 38, Jesus says to his disciples, do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. There's a lot I could say about that, but just one thing I'll say. Notice the inerrant optimism that's bound up in that metaphor of a harvest. Like I can't think of any more optimistic, encouraging, hopeful metaphor that Jesus could have used there. There's an expectation there of fruitful harvest. That's the whole point of the metaphor. The metaphor of a harvest leads us to expect fruitful ministry. And this is just a theory here, but I can't help but wonder whether a lot of the time when we don't have fruitful ministry, one of the reasons for that is simply because we're not expecting it. In other words, I wonder whether our low expectations are in some cases 
They end up being self-fulfilling prophecies. I'm reminded of one encounter that the famed 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon had with a Christian man who came to him depressed because he hadn't seen a single person come to faith through his witness in a long time. So Spurgeon asked him, do you expect the Lord to save souls every time you open your mouth? And the man was a bit embarrassed and asked, or, and said, no, sir, of course not. I don't, I don't expect that. Well, then Spurgeon replied, that's just the reason why you haven't had any conversions. <laughs> According to your faith, be it unto you. So as we think about all these things, especially about the way God orchestrated Philip's encounter with the, the Ethiopian official in Acts 8, I hope it leads us to live with that lens of expectancy where we're viewing the people and situations around us with great expectation for God to be at work. And hopefully that'll make us less hesitant and more bold in our gospel witness. But just like verse 35 states that Philip opened his mouth to share the gospel with this official, hopefully we can open our mouths a lot more as well. And I know it can sometimes be intimidating, right? I'm sure Philip was intimidated by the, the idea of approaching the chariot of such a high-ranking official. But hopefully the expectation of God being at work ahead of us, preparing the way for our gospel witness will help us to overcome whatever fear we might be experiencing and boldly open our mouths to share the gospel. Don't be a functional deist. Expect God to be at work. In fact, you might even want to make it a fixture of your daily prayer time where you're praying every morning that God would help you to, to go about your day and, and view the, the people and circumstances you'll encounter that day through a lens of expectancy. And speaking of prayer, that's another central application of this passage. If God's work really is as necessary and even central in our evangelistic endeavors as this passage makes it out to be, then I can't think of anything more important than prayer. So pray for several things. Pray for a greater awareness and sensitivity to what God's already doing in the people around you. Pray for greater faith that God is indeed at work in many of those people, even if you can't perceive it. Pray for divine appointments where God sovereignly brings about encounters and situations where you get to share the gospel with the very people in whom he's working. And then pray ultimately that God would use you to bring people to faith in Jesus. Guys, we have no right to expect God to do any of the things we've been talking about this morning apart from our prayers.